Yeah. Another big one for inflammation too is alcohol. Yeah. I find that people are yeah, have more of it. You need to have a lot more alcohol to make yourself, <laughs> which actually helps with the perceived stress. stress part. <laughs> it pickles the body. Yeah. No, no, but that's a. If you're interested in dissolving the origins of disease, finding solutions to your health problems, and living a full, meaningful, joyful life, then make sure you tune in for your weekly vitality check. Each week, the team from Vitality Multitherapy unpacks illness and explores what it truly means to be healthy. Join us as we usher in a new paradigm in healing and take a multi-perspective approach to the myriad of challenges that we face in our modern world. Together, we will go well outside the limited box of conventional medicine and find answers and solutions that put you back in the driver's seat of your own health and your life. Buckle up, join us on this journey, and let's make sure to have a little fun along the way. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Vitality Check. And this is going to be episode number two, where we actually start to share some useful information with everybody. Mm. So I think first, uh, yeah, hopefully it's going to be useful for you guys. We really are going to try to bring stuff in, provide some information and we want to really give you guys some, some practical steps on what you can implement. We really do want this Vitality Check podcast to be um, implemented and practical so you guys can take tips from us and actually implement them into your life like literally right after we're done here. So this one's going to be on fight, flight, freeze and how to regulate our nervous system. So huge topic tons of issues around this. I think most people have some kind of dysregulation in their nervous system. I don't know about you guys, but I have seen across the board more and more patients with anxiety, depression, um, inabilities to focus, like all these things are tied in with nervous system dysregulation. What are you guys seeing? Oh yeah, we're seeing a ton of that. Like I uh, I was saying before you missed the the record button, uh, um, (laughs) we've seen so much even uh, before COVID, obviously, just the way the pace of life everyone's living and um, and that. But since COVID, it's it's been a lot more. It's like there's a lot more uh, depth to what's going on now and how much people are being affected by the change in the change in life, the change in uh, how they're doing things on a regular basis uh, is has been uh, quite quite impactful on people. So um, yeah, there have seen tons of it. Agreed. I mean, the number of people that come in and say how they just feel like overwhelmed in today's world and the way they're trying to essentially keep up with their own stuff, their own work, their family life. Uh, it's, it's, it's intense and you can, yeah, it's definitely heavier. I mean, definitely heavier post COVID. Um, and even just colleagues or people I treat that are in similar lines of work. They we've all been saying the same stuff for the last few years and, and, you know, trying to, to accommodate and, and, and modify how we approach them to, you know, for the best, for the best chance of success, obviously. Yeah. You know, it's been a really interesting time because I've, I've seen with a lot of different patients that I've worked with, um, especially over the last, the last um, probably two years. But I've seen a lot of people when they had a big break for a period of time, I had a lot of people that actually found during the break where they weren't really able to go into work and do all that kind of stuff some of them actually really realized that what they were doing was not actually working for them and they were much happier one lady i remember talking to and she was saying you know all of a sudden her relationship with her partner her husband was significantly better and her relationship with her kids got so much better and she had a ton of anxiety when she was actually having to go back because she realized 
just what a disconnect that was for her. And so she actually made a lot of big changes because of that. So, you know, as much as it's been challenging on so many different levels, it, it's, it's information, you know, it, it's like whenever we kind of hit this contrast where stuff's coming up, it's, it's also shining a light on us to kind of figure out, do I still want to do that? Do I want to do things in a different way? Um, I mean, that's a big part of what, what creates a lot of stress for people too. I'm so happy you brought that up. Actually, that that totally uh, it brings true because I've seen so much of that. It's it's either the people that took the opportunity to uh, see what was going on in their life that was that was really bothering them and took this as a, a chance to maybe make some changes and do something different. That you know, not to stick to the old routine that's not working anymore and that's giving them the same result every time. Uh, and then you have the ones that didn't that really just focused on how do I keep it the same? Why, why is everything changing? And then those are the ones that really took a beating from, uh, from all the stressors that were going on. So it's amazing how like the different perce- uh, perceptions of these people uh, dictated how their nervous system was going to react, you know? So, yeah, we saw that tons. Absolutely. The ones that, you know, got a chance to work from home and had that extra non-commute time exactly. And they could carve out some time for, themselves right from to work on themselves whether it be physical or mental whatever they wanted to devote that time to certainly are the ones that came out on top and and use that extra time into their favor mm-hmm. but a lot of other ones didn't you know like you said yeah. they, I have a lot of people said well now I just log on even earlier instead of being in the car I can be on my computer at 8 a.m and don't get off till 6 6 37 <laughs> yeah and I'm like well you wonder why you're you're so exhausted all the time. So certainly it's, it's, it's how you, it's how you modify to a changing world. Right. So that's totally true. The um, working at home can be a blessing or it can be a curse, depending on what you want to do with it. Cause you can like literally never leave the office, but Kev, you talked about perceived stress and yeah. what we'll talk about for everybody here is I think we'll break down sort of the six key areas that people can focus on that, Will, will really influence how your nervous system is working. And yeah. you mentioned perceived stress, and that's probably the first one that we'll look at. So I'll give you a quick overview here, and then we're going to break these down a little bit for people. So the six key areas that I think play the biggest role in wreaking havoc with our nervous system or supporting it, depending on what we're doing, would be perceived stress, blood sugar balance, inflammation, circadian rhythm, biochemistry and structural imbalances. And I bet you a lot of people were not aware of many of those. And we're going to kind of talk about how those things impact you. And then we're going to give you some solutions on what you can start to do with it. So since we started off with perceived stress, um, Kev, I think that's probably one of the biggest ones that most people think about, you know, that's like, oh, shit, I've got issues going on with my kids, or my relationship's not good, or I don't like my job, uh, I don't have enough money. I mean, these are all the perceived stressors that are going on. And I think that's probably pretty rampant, eh? Absolutely. And it's funny how some people are just like, I had a woman today is just funny. You know, she's giving me a list of things that are wrong with her. And, you know, I'm trying to get, you know, down to what's going on with her. And she goes, "Uh," she goes, but the thing is, I'll tell you right now. And she goes, I'm not stressed at all. I'm like, oh, okay. So I just shut, I, I shut up for a while and I just started testing her. And then what ended up happening is she just rattled off all the things that were stressing her out. So it's funny. It's like she was getting nervous to, to admit that she had so many things going on, I guess, or she didn't even, wasn't even conscious of how mm-hmm. these stressors played a role and why she was feeling that way. So I think 
for us anyways, like, and I know you you think the same way, like this is such an important thing for people to understand because it's something really, if you are aware about this, uh, you can have such an impact on how you're going to feel and how things around you are going to change as well. But the perceived stress thing is uh, unbelievable about how the body's biology will just adapt itself to how the person is viewing the world whether that it is a, a relationship issue that they're going through or it's a job that they don't like or it's just purely not doing what they really want to do in life whether it's work whether it's play whether whatever it is uh the further away we get from from who we really are and get disconnected from that that's when these perceived stresses start to creep up and it's almost like your body's crying out to tell you you're not listening what are you doing so we got to get better at understanding that, knowing what those signs are, which I know we're going to talk a bit about today, uh, and um, knowing what to do to help that, which we'll get to obviously at the end of today's episode. So, yeah. So yeah, perceived stress is huge. Yeah, I I think of perceived stress as um, it's it's the low hanging fruit one. It's the one that everybody's kind of aware of. I think to some point, if they slow down and actually check in you know like you were saying with that patient of yours i find this a lot of times too um people i'll get the same thing there'll be a list of everything but i'm really not feeling stressed what i also think happens is people get so used to being in a certain state that they don't even know what a normal state is anymore i, I remember at a conference with dr stuart shanker who's a major guy um with self-regulation, particularly with kids, a way of sort of regulating the nervous system. And he was talking about kids with um, hyperactivity. And he had this one child who was diagnosed with ADHD and really hyperactive. And um, he essentially was was measuring uh, a way of measuring heart rate variability with him and his, his blood, his fluctuations in his heartbeat. And what basically he found was that this this kid was just running way up here all the time, right? All the time. And through him helping kind of guiding back and then measuring and watching his, his heart rate actually get into a regulated state of heart rate variability, the kid actually kind of went, holy cow, like that's what I'm supposed to feel like? That's what I think most of us are in. It's like if you've been running here for so long, you don't even know what it's like. So you're essentially what your normal is is totally not normal anymore and, and you need to figure out what optimal get what what it means to get back to optimal so when well, we think Jay, they, not to cut you off but that that's exactly when we have a, a patient coming in that's let's say extreme version of that right like they're just totally stressed out they don't even realize it they're running on fumes and we do techniques to kind of rebalance the nervous system and then they start to feel like they want to go take a nap mm -hmm. so you know like that's that's exactly it right like you're taking them from here super sympathetic activation down back to some normalcy some sort of balance but their body's so used to being up here that it's a, almost a shock to come back to normal so that's it when totally you have that. is a shock i think a lot of times yeah uh, absolutely yeah that's a good point well and and when you talked about perceived stress so let's let's talk a bit about um what are some of the ways to work with perceived stress? What does that um, what does that look like? So, from my perspective, I think of stressors and perceived stress as like okay, so you could have three people and they could have the same thing happen, and they yeah. might each of them perceive that very differently and have a very different effect on their nervous system depending on how they interpret 
the actual events. It's it, to me, it's like the lens on how we view our reality, and depending yeah. on the lens, that's going to affect us. So when we talk about, um, you know, so it's like someone has a breakup, right? Yeah. For one person, that could be absolutely devastating, and for another person, they might be looking at as sort of an opportunity to meet someone that they're maybe more in alignment with. Just as an example, same with like a job loss or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. So, part of it's working with changing our perception and trying to see things from another lens or another viewpoint. And and that can be really challenging if we've always been doing things in the same way. So part of that, I think, is is supporting people and being able to even try to view events from another perspective. Um, Any strategies you guys do with that or that you've kind of found that's helpful for people? Yeah, I think, uh, well, for me, anyways, the 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 is the recognition of the lenses they have. Yeah. So so part of that is just realizing like, of course you see the world in this way because of X, Y, Z that you've gone through that's formulated why you have those lenses in the first place. So then the misidentification with these lenses and or belief systems and or all these things is what kind of molds that identity into us thinking that we're this way and seeing the world in this way. Whereas, like you said, there could be someone else with a whole different set of lenses that sees it completely different. So then as soon as someone recognizes that like oh yeah okay that makes sense that's why i see it that way so then once you start being aware of it and you're able to kind of bring yourself back and say okay well what if i looked at it this way how do you feel now so it really is i think a game of awareness so the more aware you are of why you see things a certain way and you understand it and it gives you kind of like i always tell patients it's like it gives you that space yeah have a bit of reflection where you could just say all right I would normally react like this, but I'm I'm going to actually do this because this is what actually resonates with me. So I think a lot of it is that awareness part of just being able to kind of calm things down, see when you're reactionary. Well, why is it that I'm doing that? Or why is it that I see it that way? So that you can pull yourself back and bring yourself back to really ask yourself, well, what would I really want to do in this situation? Yeah, I agree. I think I think the awareness is big, and I think it starts with the communication you have with your patient that's in front of you, right? So, you know, we all have these different patients and how they come in and how they how they like. Some people don't admit their stress. We just talk about how they don't really admit it. They don't know where they're at. So that's where I like to talk is just the communication aspect around that and saying, well, if you have no stress, so congratulations, you're the only person in this world that I know of that does not have stress, right? So it's about making aware that it's some people. It's almost like they don't want to admit it. And it's that communication, that talking about how it's impossible to avoid it. It's more, what can you do to prevent those kind of peaks and valleys, if you will, to not to not fire up that sympathetic system as much, to keep more of that balance in, in the in the ANS. So that's where I kind of start with. I kind of like to talk to them. Like Kevin said, he went quiet with his patient and let things happen. That's it. It's a feeling out process, and then knowing where to intervene and how to communicate about where they're at, and and understanding that we're always going to have stress good and bad. And both of those have an effect on our body. Mm-hmm. So the ability to talk with them, um, understand where they're at, where they'd like to be, maybe some reasons, you know, some strategies on how to get there. You know, and we, a lot of times I'll talk with them too. And, you know, if I test the same meridians and stuff and something comes back as emotional or stressful, you know, then the, the talk is, is well, what is going on? Is this something short-term that's going to resolve in two weeks? Cause there's an exam you're doing in two weeks, or is this something that's more long-term that's inside of you and how, you can show through testing how much, look what this is doing to your body, right? If we can get that away from you, look how much more you can you can then withstand the stress that come at us. You know, we all have various stresses, internal and external, like that we have to battle every day, 
So yeah. the more we talk about that and what you can do to strengthen their body and, you know, the communication, the understanding, the awareness is really where I think it's so important to start. Yeah. And when you were talking about awareness, I, I agree. I think that's at the key of it. You need to have enough space there to be able to actually decide, like, is this really what I believe or is this not what I believe? Why do I believe that? I, I think at the heart of it, a lot of times, our beliefs play into how we perceive everything. So to me, then the first place around awareness would be, how do we actually create that space for people? Because when you're when you're kind of on that hamster wheel and you're go, 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 and you're always going, you're you're not used to stopping and reflecting you're you're actually an autopilot and an episode i just did on the inspiral podcast with a guest dr todd ovocatus a little while ago he was actually saying he said about 95 to 97 percent of everything that people do is all based on the unconscious and we literally are acting like automatons like we are not actually it was a conversation around free will and how much are we actually engaging that and this concept around creating awareness was key to be able to act consciously in our lives so to me i think part of this is it's like we need to find ways to slow down so that we can actually start the process of perceiving what's going on so i always feel like and if it's like you've ever been I mean I've been I've done this before you know until you start to really practice it but it's like I feel like sometimes if people slow down enough there's like this restless energy inside them that they're always trying to stay one step ahead of and they're not even consciously aware of it but it's like you slow down too much and it's like oh, got to be doing something you got to get up you got to text you got to look at the phone you got to check your email you got to do something and and we're not even aware of the fact that we're even doing it but I think if we can slow down a little bit and and actually stay and learn to stay, I think that's where we really start to deal with things because a lot of with perceived stress, it's like there's like this melting pot of emotions that I think most people are already boiled over with and it it's ties into why I don't think we we deal with things very well and we're also so reactive. So there was an exercise I remember doing with um with Pema Chodron, who was a Buddhist nun, and she called it a fear exercise, and was specifically for people dealing with like anxiety and and but it really applies to anything. And fear stands for a few key things. So fear is to feel it in your body, and then E is for embrace the feeling, because the reality is, is most of the time we don't like that inner sensation, and we actually do everything we can to avoid it. We're, you know, constantly we'll find our way. And if we slow down and be honest enough with ourselves, we'll realize why we keep, that we keep doing things to avoid that sensation. So it's feel it in your body, embrace the feeling. The A is to allow the thoughts to dissolve, because what we usually do is as soon as we get that feeling, it triggers this thinking mechanism and storyline that then we go back into. And all we do is keep reproducing the same biochemistry over and over and over again. And we literally can stay in that for a lifetime. So feel it in your body. It's addictive. It, when it, and it's absolutely addictive. We actually then start to crave it, even though we don't yeah. want it, but we actually become addicted to it. So feel it in your body, embrace the feeling, allow the thoughts to dissolve. That's kind of the heart of it. I think if we can do that, we actually allow the neurochemistry of these emotions to actually metabolize and break up. And, you know, from what I had read before, I think Dr. Jill Bolt Taylor wrote a book called The Stroke of Insight. She talked about the neurochemistry stays there for about two minutes. And then it metabolizes. But how long did people stay like angry or anxious for two minutes? It's because we keep cycling through the storyline. So these types of exercises, I think, get us out of the storyline and just let the neurochemistry, the raw emotion to just dissolve. And then the last part, the R, is to remember the millions of other people going through something similar. 
you know, Jay, like you had talked about there with um, the patient, a lot of times they, they, it's almost like embarrassed to even mention that you're feeling stressed. And I think the reality yeah. is, is like everybody is going through something similar. And, and part of, I think exactly. what we want to bring awareness to is like, these aren't novel. These, these are commonplace. And so well, don't. But we hear that all the time, right? Like I remember yeah. saying like, you know, talking about some of my kids, oh yeah, my kids are amazing and they're perfect. And I laughed years later. I'm like, yeah, my sister used to say that. Oh no, everything's great. They're amazing. Everything's perfect. No kids are ever perfect. Right. I talked to my mom the next week. Oh, they're having trouble with one of them in school. You know, like it, that it's like that, that need to think like to, to show everyone else, like the, the expectations of others, even though they don't expect it, they put that stress upon themselves. Like they have to be the perfect mom, the perfect wife, the perfect husband, whatever it may be. That yeah, they're doing yeah. the role perfectly, but that's just perfection is not something you can really strive for. And I really feel like some people carry that burden with them and they don't even know why. It, it's why I think having candid kind of conversations about what the reality of life is really like, especially like as parents, you know. Um, so I think a lot of parents have a lot of pressure on that they need to be this perception of this ideal kind of family and that nobody else is going through the same kind of challenges that they are. But uh, I don't know. I, I think. Um, if you're a parent, you go through a whole heck of a lot of challenges with stuff and that everybody does. I don't think anything like you were saying um, is is so clear cut. Everybody goes through these challenges. So part of that perceived stress and I think is like burning off some of the, the feeling sense there so that you actually even arrive a little bit more at this inherent space that lets you look at things from, from different perspectives. Absolutely. I, I often do. That's, that's one thing. It just reminded me is doing the hard focus technique with patients just to make yeah. them feel what, uh, which is very basic technique, uh, obviously of just, uh, reconnecting to something that really makes you feel good, but walking through this visualization of that expansion through the body. And it's amazing because I don't think anyone's ever gotten there, uh, under, oof, no one's gone past 30 seconds. <laughs> Meaning it's taken less than 30 seconds for someone to get in that state. Yeah. And that's just through, just through a visualization. So the more it's because it just reminded me about what you said about, you know, going into that feeling and, and, you know, letting it dissolve. And then obviously knowing too, like, what does, what does that ultimate feeling feel like when I'm, when I'm just there as an observer, you know, like, what is that? And yeah. when you do something like that and you can feel it, just like we said before, well, what does normal feel like? If we have something like that to, to bring them to that and have them repeat it more often, it gives them also a better gauge of when they're not in it. Yeah, absolutely. And and sometimes like I think what you're talking about might be the same, but I'll usually use something called heart rate variability training. And, and this is something you could even check at go to heartmath.org. That's H-E-A-R-T-M-A-T-H dot org. They've got um, ways that you can assess that. You can have an app like an inner balance app. You can connect it to your ear and you will see in real time if you are in a state of heart brain coherence or if you are out of it. And that's a very good measurement to tell you if you are in more fight or flight or more rest and digest for the most part. It goes beyond that, but that's a really great tool. I have a lot of patients that I'll get to use that because I'll have them sometimes turn it on and put it in their back pocket and just wander around, keep it on airplane mode and then see what happens. And most people will find that geez, like the last three hours I've been kind of in the red zone, like, you know, and we're not doing anything. So yeah. if you're practicing that, you start to retrain your nervous system so that that state can actually become your default more. The more you do these types of things, the more you create that, 
that um, bridge in the nervous system so it knows how to get back to it. So techniques like that, I think are great. Um, I'll put a link because I did a, I made a meditation up based on the heart rate variability or the heart math model. So I'll put a link, people can check that out and listen to the meditation and it'll help you get back through that practice that Kevin's talking about to connect back to the heart. And even from there, the second part is then to even ask questions to the heart and see if your answers are different than they are when you are answering from more of a stressful place. Mm. So pretty cool exercise. Yeah. Um, go ahead, guys. Anything else on perceived stress that you think is important there that we missed? Um, well, no, uh, no, I think we've mentioned the fact, I think the mo the important thing too, is that he's going through those resistances, right? So that, that that's kind of what we're going to lead into probably in the next podcast. So we'll maybe save it for that, but that's truly to build that resilience, to be able to deal right, with right. these things is to actually go through it. So the more we avoid all these things, the more sensitive we are to other ones that are going to creep up because it's almost like life's telling us that we need to deal with it. So it's going to just throw a whole bunch of it at us until we do. <laughs> so I always try and tell people that when, when a lot is chaotic, it's because you're getting to a good place and some good change is coming. <laughs> so uh, they're like, so awesome. It, awesome. Yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah. I think I just chime in at this and we keep saying like the strategies for, we say exercise and practice. That's what it's like. I try to relate it to people. Most people coming in to see us sometimes at this, at the start are more in the physical realm, right? We're seeing an osteopath, let's say, but the practice of meditation or the exercise of this, it, it all has the same stuff. It's just the more you do it, the more you put yourself there, the easier it is to stay there, the easier it is to live in that cir circumstance. So I think it's just all that kind of stuff. Like it doesn't happen overnight, but like anything else, if you put some time into it, you can start to see the benefits. And having the, the feedback that you're getting from that device, Jay, is outstanding because to know where you're at and you know maybe think how you, I felt so calm that whole time, yet I'm not really shows people how easy it is it's slow right that that progression of like until this is your new normal it's like when people age and they say they put on a few pounds every year a few pounds every year a few pounds every year for you know you're 20 pounds heavier than you were post university days let's say it's, it's the same premise it's it's slow and gradual but the earlier you can intervene and become aware of it which we hope that you can learn today the more you can kind of get back on track and and, and reap the health benefits from that yeah 100 percent um the next thing on the list is blood sugar balance. So a lot of times people don't realize this, but there's there's a ton of people that are imbalanced in blood sugar. Um, <laughs> I mean, this also ties in with why we have so much obesity and, and um, heart problems and all sorts of different things that go along with that. But but what a lot of times I don't think people get is that when your your blood sugar should kind of be hovering like this all day long, right? And when you're metabolically flexible, you know you can you can use carbohydrates, you can use fats. Your body can can make energy from a lot of things. If I say the biggest reason for blood sugar imbalances is usually when people eat too much of a processed food type of a diet or too many carbohydrates or sugars or starches or something along those lines, you'll get a spike, and then you'll quite quickly get a dip. And what happens is at the bottom of that dip, one of the reactions that takes place in the body is that we actually release cortisol and often adrenaline to raise blood sugar back up. So in order to get our blood sugar back up into balance, we're actually creating a lot of stress on the system. And that can be a really major one. When I did a, a lot of the training in the, in the Walsh mental health approach where we look at specific things, they found that about 35% of the people dealing with like ADHD, anxiety, 
often had dysglycemia. So their blood sugar meant it was like all up and down like this. And it wasn't always at the root of it, but it was such a big aggravating factor. And what I find is that if people are not doing well balancing their blood sugar, it will aggravate almost any susceptibility that they've got. It's almost like it just aggravates whatever else is going on there. Yeah, absolutely. We and we we see it. Maybe we can mention a, a few of the symptoms people would experience with that because we see it in clinics so often. And you know, it's quite often something that's overlooked even on our side of things, just because we're you know we're looking at from our point of view more of a mechanical based thing and or how the person's experiencing life and everything else too. But we often forget about this, which is so common mm -hmm. to have these imbalances in blood sugar. Um, yeah. so like you, like we were talking off air, you know, like the, I can remember times where we, you know, we would eat badly at lunch, let's say, and then on the drive home, just feel like I'm just going to like veer off the road because I got to take a nap. So I'm assuming, so like, uh, fatigue is probably a big one. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really well, you get a lot of different things. I mean, fatigue, definitely a big one. And yeah. I find and think about like kids, like my stepson used to be like, did not want to eat anything. Like literally would not have breakfast, would come back home from school with his lunch completely there, would not eat anything. And you could not, even have a word with him about anything until he finally got some food in because he was completely irritable, you know, could not really think straight, um, was not yeah. able to focus. And his nervous system was just totally buzzing like this because he was just so jacked up with, uh, with adrenaline cortisol from his blood sugar and hypoglycemic. So hangry, that's a big one. Some people really susceptible to that too, right? Um, I mean, oh, yeah. luckily- <laughs> well, my stepson, like I remember testing him, yeah, for a bunch of stuff. And one year he comes back, he's like, Jason, you know why I was so irritable all those years? I'm like, enlighten me. He's like, I just wasn't eating. I'm like, yeah, no, no kidding. You know, but um, he finally came to it himself and then, you know, got into his teenage years and then wanted to eat lots and it made a huge difference but just and he would even know if he was going too long and he could feel it dipping he actually knew how much that affected him and he would actually like literally disengage from like go to his room or something until food was ready because he knew he was going to like snap so some people are really He's sensitive like to blood Banner. sugar swings <laughs> totally like oh, yeah, a lot of people will come in carrying snacks with them knowing that as soon as they start feeling that way they've got a you know a couple slices of apple a few nuts on hand or something to keep it more regulated Versus the yeah. other people that just drink eight coffees all day. Right. Like, right. It's so like as it dips, I just jack that back up. Just, back just back keep up. pushing it back up. Well, yeah. that's the other thing too is cravings. So the other thing that'll tell you if you've got blood sugar imbalances, often you'll get strong cravings, usually for farinaceous stuff like breads or um, pastas or sweets or something along those lines, or you're needing coffee to constantly kind of bump you up. But it's right. also got a big long-term one. So it wreaks havoc on the nervous system because you're constantly doing this, right? So no different than having major stressful thoughts throughout the day. It's the same kind of idea. It's still having a very physiological response on you. And it's a really easy one to, to mitigate, you know? It's like even as starters, anytime you add in a little more protein, a little more healthy fat or fiber, those things will start to stabilize your blood sugar. So if you're not used to doing that and you some of these symptoms sound like, uh, maybe I should check that out. That is a really good first place to start. Maybe eat a little more frequently to start with and add a little more healthy fats, a little more protein, a little more fiber, and see how that sits first as a good starting point. 
once people get adapted, once they sort of become, um, they can handle that, then I think strategies like, which I think you guys have incorporated too, strategies like intermittent fasting can be really powerful strategies to make you much more adaptable where you can handle longer periods of time without food, without sort of dipping. But <clears throat> if you're not used to doing that and you're dealing with a lot of blood sugar stuff, start with trying to eat a little more frequently with those types of foods before you would jump into intermittent fasting, just because it might actually aggravate your nervous system even more initially. That's more like almost like the building resilience part. Once you get yeah. the base, you're better off to, if you want to challenge it further, that's a great way to maybe to get there. I think it's really key, Jay, what you said and what is important for us to explain to our patients is that the outcome on your nervous system, the effects it has to drive that sympathetically is the same, no matter if it's a perceived yeah. stress or blood sugars or the, or the topics we're going we're gonna to talk about coming up. The, the important thing to, to understand from that, that all of them have the same effect on the nervous system that it jacks you up and puts you in that sympathetic state. So the combination of all of them is really the best way on, on, on establishing that, that homeostasis that you're looking for. Yeah. I think of them like logs in the fire, you know, which logs do you have in the fire? And every time you pull a log out, the whole fire comes down a little bit. So for some people, perceived stress might be a big one. For some people that might be okay, but blood sugar is more of an issue. The next one we'll talk about is inflammation. That's another big one. So there's a lot of roots to why people I think are inflamed, but um, like when you see it in clinic, when you see someone you're like, okay, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of background inflammation going on. What are some of the symptoms you notice just clinically when you're seeing patients with it? Well, all the itises, right? Everything that's yeah. itis that comes out, bursitis, tendonitis, uh, stiffness, you know, the joint stiffness. I just feel stiff all the time, morning, you know, morning pain like that. It just, they just don't feel well. They feel stiff, rigid, dry. Those are kind of the terms that come out. But then, yeah, the tendonitis, so the, the roaming pain, a lot of ex like the extremity pain, not necessarily from the core, but breaking down the extremities because they're trying to make up for a lack of mobility in the core. Yeah, that's what I see, puffiness, swelling. Yeah. Just that that general look, you know, redness, you know, the, just a bit red, blotchy. <laughs> Devaluation. <laughs> a lot of that. Yeah. You see that a lot in patients that would suffer from inflammation and arthritic type pains and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, most of them, it, they're coming in and they're just generally don't feel good in their body. So there's either a generalized, uh, it depends on obviously where, like Jay said, where the inflammation is located. Is it generalized? Is it in a particular joint? Um, quite often what could get interesting is when it's in a particular joint, it's usually there's you know, from a, a German medicine st standpoint, it's, there's a specific significance to that, uh, not to get too much into detail, but, but for sure, uh, inflammation on the whole is like the body's reaction to, um, to us not feeling well about usually about ourselves <laughs> in the context of life. So, yeah, I think when we get into the topic, I think we'll do next topic on building resilience. We'll, we'll break that stuff down more because yeah. what you'll realize is that what we experience on the physical is often the last step related to a number of other bodies of health. So like, like Kev's talking about from what I would find is like some good starting points for inflammation stuff. Um, at least what I see from more of like a naturopathic perspective as well, um, as well as what you guys are talking about from osteopathic perspective, I'll see that too. But what I'll often find is that um, if people pay attention to their diet so much of the time, Diet can be a really quick one to mitigate a ton of inflammation. A lot of people 
have inflammatory triggers in their diet. So specific foods for some people can be more inflammatory. So standard ones could be like what we call nightshades or solanaceous foods. So those would be ones like potato, tomato, eggplant, paprika. Um, those are just for some people, they have a sensitivity to the solanine in those foods, which can cause inflammation. I find that specifically with say arthritis, that would be something you'd want to take out and just see, you know, give yourself like Usually you need to do it for about three or four weeks to be off of something to really get a good representation of if that is causing troubles. And then you bring it back in a fair bit and look to see what happens in your body. Um, right. Dairy and gluten, common ones for most people. I think if people haven't done it, everybody should try to follow almost like an autoimmune paleo template diet or something. You can just check that out. If you can do that for two weeks to a month, and see what changes in your body, it could be pretty dramatic sometimes. Um, I mean, inflammation will also show up like in skin. A lot of times people don't get that, but it's like chronic eczema or psoriasis or these types of things. I had a patient a while ago, the young girl um, had horrible eczema and we did a couple different things and I, I changed up her diet and I literally got within a week dramatic changes and after about three weeks, I got a picture back and her skin's completely fine. Like crystal clear. And that was almost solely from doing just diet and a couple of other changes. Um, a couple other things, just so people are aware when we think about inflammation, so foods, and you can do that simply by doing elimination diet or like an autoimmune paleo. You can do food sensitivities too. You can do testing for it. A big one, I think almost everybody's out of balance if they're not taking in regular fish or doing a, a fish oil or a plant-based proper fish oil that's more like a DHA. Um, EPA yeah. is an imbalance with omega-3s and omega-6s. I even stopped running that test because I would run it on people and like everybody was out of balance. Basically everybody, if you're not taking fish, but the problem is that you can only take so many fish because there's metals in fish and that can be an issue. So most people need to be doing some kind of a fish oil too, but that's a big one. That That's setting the cornerstone for inflammatory load and your ability to deal with it um, in the body. So foods, fatty acids, oxidative stress. So that's like free radical stress on the body. Um, get from like poor quality oils from just mostly a crappy diet. Other things triggering stress system will do that too. Heavy metals this is why also detoxification, I think it'd be really beneficial for people. So and then Jay, I, when you, sorry, not to cut you off, but just, I think it's important when you say crappy oils. So you're talking stuff like canola oil and vegetable yeah, oil and things like that, right? Good point. Cause most people don't realize what what oils are kind of not healthy. So um, yeah, I mean, we often think of canola oil as being a good, healthy heart oil. It's absolutely not. It's, it's right. a really bad oil. For the most part, you don't want to use much of any oils other than what we use personally. It's like I would use good quality olive oil that I don't superheat, but I would use that raw on salads and, and even my vegetables and stuff. Um, I would use ghee or grass-fed butter and I would use coconut oil and I would have foods like avocado and coconut and some of those things too but I really don't have pretty much any industrial seed oils anymore um, you know sometimes it's hard if you're out or something you can't control all of that but at least what you can control at home you can minimize minimize all of those and have have those ones that I mentioned what about avocado oil there's a bit of mix back and forth on it so I think having avocado itself 
in its whole food form is probably the best way to do it. But I still have had avocado oil that I've used too. It can handle heat a little bit better than other ones. Yes. But I would still say I use ghee probably more because ghee's, ghee's basically, there's no protein in ghee. So even people that have a dairy sensitivity, the vast majority of them can all have ghee because there's literally no protein to react to. And it handles heat better than just about anything. Like it won't yeah. smoke when you're heating it up. So, but I've rotated avocado oil in there too. I think there's benefits to avocado oil. You get into any of it, you'll see pros and cons with everything. I mean, gosh, you can look at vitamin sure. C and you'll see pros and cons with everything. I think try it out on your body. And then sometimes you measure stuff, you know, then sometimes you check some of these different things, you know, run a fatty acid profile and see where you are. Sometimes I think people need to actually see it on paper too. So it means something to them to then implement some of the different changes. And the other thing that's I like to chime in too, like you said, oh, if you go out, you can't control it. But that's the beauty. If you're doing it at home anyway, you can't be 100% on all the time, right? So 80, 20, whatever. 80, 20. Yeah. No, you're, you're good. You're, 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 you're hitting it out of the park at home, kind of, if you will, right? So that when you go out, you don't have to worry about it. You shouldn't have to. Yeah. And that's a great point, Jay, because when I think about that overall, you don't want to feel like you are living in a bubble and everywhere you go, you got to be in your bubble. That, to me, that's not living. I want to have enough resilience that. <laughs> I want that to have in itself is a stress. That, absolutely, absolutely. That in itself is a is is a disease. It's it's, yeah. it's almost become the like obsessive compulsive a little bit, right? Where I get to bring my food with me when I go out and all that kind of stuff. But not going out because they don't prepare things the way I want to prepare. No. That's just a different form of really addiction or or mental health, if you want to call it that. And it right? totally goes back to that first thing we talked about about just slowing things down and checking in with yourself on how you're doing. Yes. I get sometimes you're so out of balance that you need to be really strict for a period of time um, just to get back into a state of balance. But the goal is not to always be there all the time. You want to have enough resilience that you can interact with life um, in a different way, in a, in, a, in a larger, more expanded way. That's kind of my goal for health anyways. Yeah. Another big one for inflammation too is alcohol. Yeah. I find that people are, yeah, have more of it. You need to have a lot more alcohol to make yourself. <laughs> Which actually helps with the perceived stress, stress part. <laughs> it pickles the body. Yeah. No, no, but that's a, I mean, I would say that even during the pandemic, right, when people were at home, I, that was another comment a lot of people had is they were drinking more than they were Absolutely. before. And that can obviously have some effect on inflammation as well. Yeah. Inflammation, because it also totally affects blood sugar. It turns into sugar yes. very quickly. So, yeah, big one. And, you know, even as much as they try to make alcohol a health food with wine and, and resveratrol and all these different things, really, there's a lot more damage to alcohol than there is positives. Now, I'm not saying don't have a glass of wine and stuff once in a while, but just, I think, just be honest with yourself that you're not, it's not a healthy thing to do. Big picture, right. it's not more healthy than it is to uh, to no not have your cereal. Yeah, right. so that's cool. I mean, I'll have a glass of wine once in a while too, or a beer. I enjoy it, but I'm but I'm not trying to fool myself that I'm having a health food drink. Right. Yeah, it's cheap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. You have that some falls stressing. in the twenty. Falls in the twenty percent. Exactly. All right. What's the next one on the list here? Circadian rhythm. All right, so circadian rhythm, that's our sleep-wake cycles. Uh, again, sleep-wake cycles, when they get out of balance, major stressor on the body. We are really designed to follow more of a natural blueprint. So it's like when it's light, we should be up. When it's dark, we should go to bed. That's kind of how we're designed to do it. I, I think one of the things that I've seen causes really big havoc is my shift workers. Their nervous systems are all over the place. So, you know, some of the different people that have jobs like nurses, I would say, or ambulance drivers, or some of my patients like that, that are 
all over, just different, different work where you're doing shifts. That can be a really challenging one on the nervous system. Yeah. I definitely seen that definitely people working at night. It's awful. Uh, I, and even personally, I remember like when kids were really young, uh, you know, staying up super late just because that was the only time that you could get anything done. And I was just gassed. Like my system was awful, but I was just, you know, obviously younger and, and pushed myself through it anyways. Uh, but yeah, so it's, so again, I guess we'll get into sleep patterns and stuff like that too, and the optimal times to sleep. And, uh, because yeah, if you don't give your body that rest, well, obviously it's very hard to recuperate, you know? Yeah. And I think it's important just to stay on a schedule too, right? Like there's like, like some people are just, they go to bed at a different time all the time. They wake up differently, even for the holidays coming up, like people are like, okay, so like, what are you going to do? Are you change it up? Do you sleep in? I'm like, well, I don't sleep in like now. I get up every day at 545. I'm doing that for 20 years. I, I can't like my body's so accustomed to getting up at a certain time. I thought I should try to sleep till eight or eight 30. was after a few times over the past and you, you feel terrible, right? Cause I'm, my, my body's just not used to it. So you end up waking up around the same time and then tossing and turning until it's actually time to get out of bed. So you might as well just get up anyway. But I think <laughs> it's really important to be in, in, in routine, like anything else that your body You'll a you'll fall you'll fall asleep better that way because your body's expecting you to be in bed at that time, and you'll wake up more alert because you're 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 respecting, you know the the routine that you've instilled within your body. I think that's really important, and a lot of people do not um, understand or put enough of an emphasis on getting enough and and proper sleep, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, and routine's a big one too. I mean, it's like it's like bowel movements, right? I mean. Once you get into a regular cycle of that, you can kind of rely on it. You know, kind of, you know, every morning after a certain time, you're probably going to have a bowel movement. I think of it like sleep with that too. And and there's not really one strategy that works for everybody. That's part of it too. It's like there's lots of books on sleep. I think the important things are to try to, rem- if you're having trouble sleeping, a couple things I would check would be, are you sleeping through the night? Do you have troubles falling asleep or are you waking throughout the night? Because those, those can be different sort of issues around that. And then when you wake up in the morning, how do you feel? Are you feeling like you're rested? Do you feel like you're rejuvenated? Do you need to hit sleep over and over again on the alarm until you get up? Or do you kind of feel like I'm, I'm ready, I'm up, ready to start the day? You know, get back again, like we talked about at the beginning, get back in and, and check in with your body. That'll give you a good idea on how you're doing. And then, you know, like for Jay, what he's doing might work very differently for me. There was a book out called, um, I think it was called The Power of When, and it was breaking down different sleep patterns for different people. And he categorized them in animals. So it was like a lion wakes up really, you know, they just like naturally to get up early in the morning and they kind of crash. They're not, they're not, they don't like to be up late at night. Whereas like he called the wolves don't like to get up early in the morning. They like to stay up a little bit later at night. So you know, as much as I think we're, we're designed for the most part to follow a circadian rhythm, there's probably some, there's nuances within all of that on what's going to ultimately work for everybody. You know, I definitely am not a stay up late kind of guy. It doesn't work for me. I, I could go to bed pretty much when I put my five and six year old to bed and probably pass out most of the time and often do. Yeah. Where my wife, she could actually hang out and, you know, she finds like her quality time, you know, by herself or something, reading or hanging out in the evening. She could do that a lot better than I could. But I would get up early when everybody's asleep. And that's when I feel most productive. So like you're saying, Jay, you got to kind of figure out what works for you. But but check, but, but have a baseline so that you can objectively 
and, and subjectively measure to see if what you're doing is working for you. That's, I think, the big yeah. thing. So depending on too the 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 another one i thought of uh, in terms of type of patient is the 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 business person so traveling for sure distances, you know different time, different time zones that's definitely a big one that uh, will help reset their their clock when they come back in with uh, a few acupuncture points which is kind of a cool thing we could maybe make a video just on that that's that could be fun too that's Some a acupuncture points and even like grounding like actually getting your body on the ground on the yeah. earth like they used to do uh where you would actually literally lie down on the grass wherever you are at some point and and it sort of helps you get readapted back to that that um time schedule yeah. Nice. Um, well, sleep in itself will be a great episode. We'll do hopefully in the near future. We can do yeah. that. Talk about sleep for hours, right? Call it yeah, absolutely. Probably pillow some big thing. What was that? Pillow talk with Kevin. Pillow talk with Kevin. <laughs> well, not just me. We'll all lay on the bed. We'll all lay on the bed and talk. Yeah. Awesome. I look forward to that one. All right. Um, probably a couple of key things people could do, though, is screens really not a good idea to have too much at night. I mean, I think that's probably pretty obvious for most people, but whether you actually apply it or not is a different story. You know, a lot of times we're on screens right till bed and it, that will actually affect the blue light from it does affect circadian rhythm. Um, My father also stimulating. Puts sleep. See, and that's where you might fall asleep. But again, then I would check with yourself on, are you waking up feeling refreshed? Is it working? Or are you kind of in a bit of like a, overdrive throughout the night and even like dreams you know are your dreams changing depending on what you're being exposed to before bed yeah. one thing we started doing and we've done this for a while now is we actually shut off the router and a lot of the power in the house before bed so you will actually feel like this sort of almost background hum disappears you know and i actually find it's a, it helps a lot for sleep um, i've even seen some children that were having like night terrors that yeah. went away when they actually shut down the Wi-Fi and stuff overnight. It's one uh, of these, one of these sort of more subtle um, energetic frequencies that we don't always are so clear on how it affects us. And for some people, it really can be a big deal. But I think again, it's one more stressor on the body that yeah. doesn't need to be there when you're sleeping. Well, important to mention because it just keeps getting bigger. They keep increasing it. So mm -hmm. yeah. And it just makes me laugh because at night quite often we forget and then we're laying in bed and we're like flipping rock paper scissors to see who's gonna, who's go gonna go shut, shut the router off <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, uh, i got a story too i remember years ago i've been fortunate that I'm, I'm a very good sleeper i fall asleep right away i sleep fairly well um but i remember it's got to be counting sheep no no I, I'm, I'm usually like you know 10 minutes or whatever i'm out i remember it must have been about 10 years ago now and lying in bed and it was starting it was it happened every so often i just i wouldn't i it take me half hour 45 minutes i'm still awake and i remember one night i'm laying there and i'm thinking okay close your eyes just just read what is why am i not what is that and i just listened and then in front of me i'm laying my and my wife's in front of me and i just feel this buzz like emanating from her who is <laughs> not the best sleeper come on and i'm like it's impossible i'm like <laughs> Oh my God, what are you thinking about? What? What? How do you know I was awake? What? I'm like, oh my God, I figured it out. All those years. It's her like, fault. She's, pretty, pretty <laughs> totally. she's a pretty decent sleeper, but there are times when she's just kind of going over things in her head. And now, like literally like three months later, I called it right away. I'm like, you're up again, Richie. She goes, oh my goodness. And so it's it's a running joke for us that 
periodically if I can't fall asleep and I listen, I know it's not me and I'm going over stuff. Like it's like you're not, you're not cracking teeth or anything. Not cracking teeth, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so true, though. Like if um, for you know, it, it, it even ties back to like that heart rate variability stuff that we were talking about earlier. Um, the heart literally gives off an electromagnetic field that is measurable about eight feet outside, and it interacts with other people around them. So if they are in a state of sort of incoherence, which would be if they're like mentally stressing and they're up in here, they likely would be, and you will pick up on that. What's yeah. kind of cool that you could even practice or we do sometimes is that, you know, you could even like sit and say like, meditate and get into a really strong coherent state and see if she actually entrains to that, right? Because that can go both ways. So, but it's, it is really wild. It literally is these things that we interact with that we can't see. They're most of the time, they're not even perceivable through the five senses, but on some level we kind of uh, connect to them because they are there and they do affect us. So that's wild. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Magda's fault. Your awareness. Go. It's Magda again. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So plenty of talks. <laughs> bedside confessions with jason turnbull yeah that's right that'll be another series um all right i think that's it overthinking so yeah meditation i know for me like if i'm having trouble sleeping and whatever it is or if, if i just have got lots of mental stuff i'm processing or you're more stressed i would practice getting into like a meditative state get used to doing that um, a lot of times that's where I'll do it is, you know, especially with little kids, sometimes that's the only place you can do it is they're passed out and I'll be sitting in bed and, um, and that'll be my time that I'll, I'll sort of allow myself to get into that space. So we'll, we'll add that to the, the potential uh, podcast uh, episodes, because I think we could go on forever about that topic. But uh, one important fact for people is because a lot of people, I just found it, a lot of people say, well, I tried meditation, but it didn't work. So I'm like, what do you mean by that? I tried it one time. They're like, well, you know, I just kept thinking. I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that That's kind of what your brain does. I said, the idea is really to observe them going by the thoughts and not get engaged by them. So mm -hmm. it's not so much that you're not going to think of anything because that's almost impossible. And it's, so just to give people a chance that are listening, you know, like it really is a practice of just an observation and not so much not thinking anything, because if that's your objective, you're never going to be successful with it, especially in the beginning. So it's just to give yourself a chance of really being able to see something there and just let it go. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, you're going to fail if you think it's to not think about anything. It's yeah. don't go down the rabbit hole with the thoughts. Because right. usually what happens is then you realize, oh, crap, the last five minutes I've been like totally off somewhere. So hey, just <laughs> pull yourself back. You know, I'll usually use like my breath or I'll focus on my hands or, or yeah. my, the, the, the nose, the breath going in out of the nose, whatever yeah. that helps. But, um, just keep bringing yourself back and, and don't get judgy on yourself. That's, that's part of it too. It's like, that's a default. We like to get on our own backs around stuff. It's just a practice just like anything else. Yeah. And just breathing in general, quite often I'll start with that instead of meditation, because some people don't, you know, they don't resonate with that word, depending on who's in front of you. Just breathing, right? Like yeah. Explain these, the sympathetic versus parasympathetic, how breath is normally controlled with the parasympathetics. It's bringing closer relation. I find people kind of grasp onto that quite easily. So if you're having a hard time sleeping, just, you know, focus on your breathing a little bit deeper breaths than usual. And that, you know, typically can get the mind to kind of the chatter to quiet down a little bit too, and maybe enough so that you can fall asleep. Yeah. You drift off as you're, as you're doing your meditation. Yeah. Doing the funky chicken. <laughs> 
All right, biochemistry, we're just about at the end here. So I'll quickly run through this. And I added this one just because one of the areas that I've seen, I, I do a lot of work with mental health and specifically looking at underlying biochemistry that affects anxiety and depression, ADHD, stuff like this. And so I had to throw this one in because some of the things that we will check, some people just have certain susceptibilities to imbalances in biochemistry that will regulate either the production of neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, GABA, noradrenaline, um, or norepinephrine, or it affects the conversion of one to another, or how long they actually stay there sort of in the synapse to have an effect. And so we can measure some of that stuff to see what's going on. So some of the big ones we think is like a, a urine pyrrol test can be a huge one that can cause people to have very low levels of serotonin, dopamine, and GABA. So they really just don't have the biochemistry there to regulate how they feel. And that one can be absolutely like havoc on people. Their mood can, you know, we'll call it Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, where zero to 60, they can flip really quickly. Um, it can also affect things like their immune system and their skin and their ability to focus and all sorts of things. So a couple other ones that I think that's, that's a whole nother conversation, but zinc copper levels, High copper, low zinc will create another thing where it causes a lot of conversion of dopamine into norepinephrine. So for example, ADHD, a lot of times about 70, 75% of the people you see with that often have a big zinc and copper imbalance. 95% of women with postpartum depression, anxiety often have a big copper imbalance because copper doubles during pregnancy. And if you have that susceptibility that you can't get rid of it, it's causing a big shunt from dopamine into norepinephrine. So you're constantly getting this sort of fight or flight and your ability to focus and seek pleasure to life and stuff is just going down. And then the last one, something called methylation, which affects how long things stay in there. People can be under or over methylated. So that's another aside one that we'll, we'll do something on one day, but that is another piece that would need to be tested to see if that's there. People that yeah. have chronic issues with like anxiety, depression, focus, mood regulation. That's one of the first lines of things I think that need to get tested for them. Nice. And then the last one is structural imbalances. So what are some of the big ones, guys? Structural imbalances, where do you see the big ones that will start to really aggravate the nervous system? Well, anything obviously for us that's limiting the mobility of the cord in the brain. So like you're going to have like uh, the basic attachments down by the base of the back on the sacrum to things in the upper neck uh, into the cranium that are limiting the nervous system's capacity to move and auto-regulate itself. So if we have this, uh, uh, primary respiratory movement that happens, which is basically this, uh, fluctuation of the cord, uh, and the brain and that the fluidic motion on the inside through the CSF fluid, which is actually what regulates the nervous system or helps regulate it and has anti-inflammatory properties and all these things. Uh, this is that big wave they keep talking about uh, that is helping the body re regulate itself, heal itself. Um, so the more restricted you are in those zones and the less that motion happens, then for sure the body's capacity to regulate itself is greatly diminished. So those would be some areas for sure that we would we would look at as a as a start for sure. Yep, absolutely. So that's like a lot of the parasympathetic attachments and then obviously then the T-spine and the ribs as well for the sympathetic mm -hmm. ganglion. So any kind of more kind of bigger dysfunctions if you will or subluxations in those areas can potentially have uh, an impact on the on the sympathetic ganglion and then and some of that uh, the firing from there.
But so yeah, yeah. essentially the vertebral column at, at large, but yes, mostly the attachments to the dura and then and then the sympathetics along the T-spine as well. That's where you're looking, right? So someone's really, you know, low key down, you know, blah, you, you know, you want to bring them up, if you will, with the sympathetics or the other ones that are too high, what we see more often, right? Where they're stressed out and it's usually more the attachments, cranial base, sacral base, and trying to influence their mobility and, and restore their proper motion to, to help regulate and to let the body do what it's supposed to do, which is, you know, auto-regulate and, and take care of itself. Yeah. I remember doing that course in our, in our fifth year, Jay, in osteopathy. And then you finally get to the auto-regulation course, which is literally at the end. And by the time you do that, you're almost like, does that trump almost everything else we did for the past, <laughs> you know, yeah. almost five years? Because you realize that if you address that, it has so such big downstream effects. You know, like a couple other areas that people can tie in that I find this relates to with structurally too is TMJ problems yeah. often create big troubles with autonomic nervous system. You've got branches off the vagus nerve that affect in through there and diaphragm. A lot of times I find from people's posture, which is really crappy and all forward here. And because they're usually stressed, they don't breathe properly. And again, vagus nerve traverses right through the diaphragm. So those types of areas too, I find are out of balance for a lot of people. So, you know, time back, you know, you see how there's like, this is all like a circle, you know, like yeah. all of these pieces play into it. You, you start to work on doing meditation and breathing properly. Well, you, you're actually going to have some effect on your structural imbalances just by doing that yeah, exactly. or you correct your postural imbalances and all of a sudden maybe you actually can meditate better and do different things because you can actually tap into your breathing more effectively um so it's like any one of those is a good place to jump into so right. I'd, I'd look at all of them for everybody watching this see which one really jumps out at you where do you want to start um pick one and then that sort of jumps out with you as being a bigger deal for you at this point and then i would start to implement some of the stuff so as we want to do on every episode here is break down a couple of big ones that we think are the most important to start with so maybe we'll each give our number one that could be an actionable for you guys to start to implement right away on whichever one jumps out at you so jay why don't you start us off and whatever you would start with people well typically when people come in to see me they don't really if they haven't seen an osteopath before they don't understand all that we do and the way especially here how we talk to people and the connections we make and how we try to be and or understand that the necessity of holisticness to be together and how everything plays a role together but i find that most people relate mostly to structural stuff so i'll talk about the imbalances stuff first so that's it i mostly coach them on like importance of not having stagnation. So proper blood flow and, and the importance of getting fresh blood to an area. And then likewise, taking the used blood and its metabolic waste and, and being able to, to drain and bring that back. So a lot of talk about just mobility stuff. So I talk about stagnation and I talk about you know, motion as lotion. And I just find people kind of can easily resonate with that. And I find if you can kind of get like an early win, if you will, where they start to see some gains with that. For me, it opens the door to then talk more about their mental health their emotional health, spiritual health, whatever way you want to look at it from there. So I just encourage a lot of mobility work. So either breathing for the diaphragm, like you said, um, I often, because the attachments of the autonomic nervous system, like Kevin's explaining the cranial base and the sacral base, I call it hand to heel rocking. I give them like a, like a, like a child's pose into a cobra where they'll kind of repeatedly mm -hmm. go back and forth. Uh, You'll often rock people in his office. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> rock them to sleep. 
and then depending on where they're at, sometimes I have them actually visualize like the cord, like in its sheath, like kind of, kind of, you know, if you will, like kind of sliding through and allowing more space. Mostly that's where I start. I find that to me, it gets them kind of involved. I'm a really big believer on having people do stuff at home as well. We don't want to be like, you know, lay on my table and fix me. They play an active role in their health. So I think usually that's how I start, depending on obviously the persona, but most people come in thinking we're more structural like that. So to me, it's like a natural gateway for me to get them to understand that A, they play a role in their health and B, by doing these things, how much it starts to influence, yes, their, their injury, but more I'm talking about their general well-being and health and that the more we get the bigger things to move properly, the more their latest compensations that they've been presenting with will start to go away on their own. So that's where I like to start. Cool. Kev, what would be your big actionable for people? Um, for me, it's a big one. Yeah, I, I, we break out into song um quite often <laughs> sometimes dance uh, no, no, that's therapeutic no. dance that's a good one though yep. it is it is it's all about mobility um well normally for me it's it's gauging with with each particular patient but for sure i like to gauge to see um what's affecting them the most and quite often it's just that educational aspect of showing them how much they're playing a role and why they are stuck the way that they are right now uh, and sometimes that takes a few sessions to get up, but, but I think that's the most important thing is when people start to see and take that time. So where I'm, what I'm getting at is, uh, I would teach them how to, I do that hard focus technique in order to allow them, uh, that space to be able to see the difference of being in a, a, a more calm state versus what they're in on a more regular basis and have them understand that if they are more aware of this and build that awareness into those situations, bringing that calmness into the chaos will allow them to build that resiliency so that they don't end up back in the office again with every single little thing they do because they're not building that, uh, that resiliency to the, the external world or how they perceive that external world. So there's a lot of discussion about that. So a lot of it is about that awareness and building that uh, viewpoint uh or a different viewpoint of, of how they're living. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So heart centered breathing one, I'll, I'll put a link if I can get a link on this one in the YouTube video so that people can actually, um, download that and go and check it out. And I, I actually think I have a, a meditation I did that I, I have on a, that I recorded on cool. it. So I'll send it. To so you. we'll put, we'll put a couple links down there so people can try some different things. Yeah. Um, and I guess mine, I would probably say then, why don't we work with the blood sugar part? If that's something that's out of balance, that's a that's an easy one to fix, and it can make a really big difference in how you are affecting your fight or flight response, those ups and downs triggers. So, I would say if you are first, if you got no idea what you're doing with diet, really, it's just never been something. Try to eat more frequently, small meals more frequently. Sounds kind of cliche, but it definitely works. But the key is what you're putting in those small meals. So it doesn't mean eat like a bag of chips more frequently or have a donut more frequently or something that's going to cause more up and down fluctuations. Get in some kind of healthy protein or fats like we talked about. So if you eat meats, any sort of animal proteins that are good quality animal proteins, those are going to slow down blood sugar. If you don't eat meats, then something like legumes can be a pretty good slow resistant starch that takes a little bit longer or a slow carb that doesn't spike your blood sugar so much and has more protein in it 
or do like a shake or something like that that has like collagen powder or some kind of protein powder mixed with um, some healthy fat, um, coconut cream or olive oil or something along those lines. If you can do that a little more frequently and also veggies, any kind of like regular veggies, non-starchy veggies are really good, just their fiber, right? So if you can incorporate a little bit more healthy protein, healthy fat and fiber, maybe spread that out so you've got your three main meals and maybe you have a couple snacks in between there just to buffer blood sugar initially. If that starts to get really good and you feel really good doing that, then you could start to explore something like intermittent fasting where you maybe even start with like a 12 hour off, 12 hours on. That You could even start there where all your calories are consumed within 12 hours and then none over the other 12 hours. And then from there, you can gradually condense that more to like an eight hour eating window. But don't start there if you're not used to it because sometimes that can aggravate people. But if you can gradually move to that, that's one of the best ways to make your body metabolically ad adapted, I think, where you can take carbs and fats. All right, everybody, I think that gives you some doables there to try and some actionables. So uh, let us know what you think. Send us some success stories. Let us know if there's any other topics that would be helpful that you would like us to put together for you. Absolutely. Amazing. That was great. All right, boys. See you guys later. Take care, everybody.